You're tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, 3CR Digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Up next, we bring you more conversations from the Forum for Dwelling Justice, held at the Capitol Theatre here in Melbourne on Friday 26th of August. The Forum was organised by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research and supported by the International Journal of Housing Policy, the Renters and Housing Union and 3CR. Over the next few weeks, you'll hear discussions about the relationship between colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, racial violence and poverty, and how we all have a role to play in building solidarity among movements. My name's Libby Porter. I want to acknowledge that I'm a coloniser, uh, descended from colonising people uh, living on stolen land. I want to pay my respects to Wurundjeri elders and ancestors, to Indigenous people here today, and to all of the resistance fighters against colonisation, a process that has benefited my family and benefits me, and I want to position myself in that way today. We're here to focus in this panel on the politics of dwelling on stolen land from different perspectives. We've heard in the previous panel and in this panel, a group of wonderful people engaged in scholar activist work to consider what it means to dwell and to dwell justly. How can that be possible when the very ground beneath our feet is stolen ground? And how can we organise in a different way to change that fundamental fact of the way in which someone like me can belong in this country? And I've been thinking a lot about dwelling, uh, obviously, bringing this, this event together. The forum focused on dwelling justice is trying to consider this idea of dwelling, of being more than just housing, more than just the, the bricks and mortar or the form of tenure or the way in which we organise ourselves, but dwelling as fundamental to any life on this planet, human and more than human. And I'm inspired and, and reminded of Kumbamari scholar Mary Graham's words about dwelling, the philosophy of dwelling. I am placed, I am located, therefore I am. We are all in place uh, we, we, and, and we are all experiencing um, being located somewhere. So the forms in which that emplacement occurs in a colony, like the one we live in, is organised through the forms of carcerality and the forms of oppression and the forms of dispossession and displacement that we've been talking about already today underpinned by the racial violence of colonisation. So to tangle with these ideas of home, of being, of belonging, we must tangle with them as political questions that are fundamentally inseparable from racial colonial capitalism, from the carceral state. And we have to engage as activists in our work, whether that be through research or education, campaigning, and all the forms of action and, and work that we heard about from the brilliant panel just earlier. Uh, we have to engage deeply with what that means, what responsibility that brings, um, however we are located here. So to do that this afternoon, I'm joined by five rather wonderful scholar activists working at different intersections, and I want to introduce them to you just now. Dr. Elizabeth Flynn is a Larrakia and Tiwi Chinese, Malaysian and Muslim uh, writer and academic, and now my colleague at RMIT, I'm very pleased about that. Her research is focused on Indigenous literature, and she's a widely published author exploring narratives of truth and grief interwoven with explorations of race and gender. Tasnim Samak is a Palestinian Muslim organiser, a PhD candidate at Monash University, uh, and a single mum of two boys and her writing and research examines decolonial education, internationalist solidarity building and political subjectivities through counter-storying. As vice president of FAMSI, she co-founded the first Muslim school-based mentoring program here in Australia. Dr. Liz Strakosh is a non-Indigenous scholar now at University of Melbourne, and her research examines policies and political identities in the context of colonialism and structural and racial violence. Liz is co-director of the Institute of Collaborative Race Research 
which is an Indigenous-led organisation waging a war on race in this colony. And her colleague, Dr David Singh, also at the Institute, was unfortunately unable to join us today. Then joining us virtually, Dr Tina Grandinetti is an Uchinachu woman living on Kanaka Maoli lands in occupied Hawaii. Her research aims to advance housing justice by reframing housing and home through the lens of Aloha Aina. She's been active in the fight for a demilitarised future for the Pacific, and she's currently Chief of Staff uh, for Representative Amy Caruso in the Hawaii House of Representatives. And finally, Dr Natalie Osborne is a non-Indigenous researcher and educator at Griffith University in Environmental Planning and Critical Geography. Nat's work focuses on social, spatial and environmental justice in cities, grassroots urban politics and emotional geographies. She's a co-producer of Radio Reversal, a critical theory and political program broadcast on 4ZZZ and Mianjin and an organiser with the Brisbane Free University. Elizabeth, I'm going to pass to you. Thank you. Thanks. As always, I want to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people and that we're here today on the unceded sovereign country of Wurundjeri and acknowledge their ancestors and their elders. Often when I do an acknowledgement of country, one of the things I like to acknowledge because acknowledgement of country, I think is very much about, for me as a black fella, my relationship to other people and relationship to country. But I think also in our current context, it's important to acknowledge the wealth that's generated. I moved from Ghana country to Nam in pursuit of career and that sort of thing. And so it's always important for me to acknowledge that I am able to make work and make a living on this country, on Wurundjeri country, and also Bunurong country where I live, based on the sacrifices that the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong people were forced to make. I also wanted to acknowledge Elders Uncle Robbie Thorpe and Uncle Larry Walsh, who will be speaking later. And I wanted to say a really big thank you to the previous keynotes, particularly Lydia Thorpe for her talk about sovereignty and putting allyship into action. And um, wanted also to thank the previous panelists for their discussion. Hopefully there'll be a bit of crossover and linkage between what I talk about. As I always do, I just wanted to start by talking a little bit about my personal experience. I live a black life, I always have, and in this country what that means is exclusion from institutions. And those institutions are designed, that's what I wanted to talk about today, they're designed specifically to exclude First Peoples. I'm not going to go too much into detail, but I know that any of mine and my family's life struggles with health or housing education, the justice system, those are part and parcel of the everyday life of living with ongoing colonial violence. Although one of the things I wanted to acknowledge is how privileged I am despite all of the oppression that I face, particularly in terms of education, um, and very privileged to work for an institution like RMIT, which we'll talk about a little bit later. One of the things I often talk about is that racism against blackfellas and racism against what started as non-Anglo-Celtic people in the early days of the colony and then was sort of transmuted into essentially non-white migrants. That kind of racism, they're really two sides of the same coin. And I, I know that before I became an academic, I knew this, it was part of my embodied everyday experience as a Chinese and Aboriginal person growing up racialized in white Australia, and then having that experience deepen after I became a Muslim and started wearing hijab. One of the things we have to remember about institutions and the institutions that we have today, you know, if we are thinking about all of the institutions that make up this society, when we're talking about media, the health system, the education system, sporting institutions, everything. These were set up from the very beginnings of the colony here on this continent to exclude First Peoples based on racism. Distinguished Professor Aileen Morton Robinson, she talks about Captain Cook's journey up the East Coast uh, before colony was established. And as he was seeking to claim this continent and this land for Captain Cook, she talks about how he described us as blackfellas based on our skin colour. You know, these people are like coffee, these people are like other racialized terms. And also talks about the, the racist stereotypes that he jotted down in his journal. 
that we weren't like the British, that we didn't seem to understand possession of belongings, we didn't want to trade, all of those sorts of things. Those things are about race. And race was used to justify the theft of land. Effectively, Captain Cook, the British, the white man, decided that we were not civilised, that they could use the legal fiction of terra nullius, that is to say that this continent is nobody's land, because they racialised us First Peoples as black. And they attached to that racialization negative connotations about us, all of those things that I spoke about before, that we didn't understand possession, that we were uncivilized, all of those sorts of things so that they could declare that it was nobody's land. Although I do want to say that obviously what we do today is we reclaim that blackness for ourselves in a positive sense. That very same racism uh, exists in today's Australian society. And it can be found in those very early beginnings in, in Cook's descriptions of us and in that declaration of terra nullius. But through the establishment of the colony and the expansion of the colony on this continent, this racism has been deeply embedded into the very early institutions of what has now become Australian society. So as I said before, if we are thinking about today's institutions, sporting institutions, media, health, all of those sorts of things, the justice system, there is a very strong thread between those early days of the colony and the institutions we experience today. Often people struggle to make that connection between the past, I mean, particularly racists who are like, just get over it, it was in the past. Often people struggle to make that connection. But the kind of exclusion and violence that we see within these institutions today is the legacy of those very early days of, of the colony. I wanted to give a bit of an example. The institution that is Australia's education system, because that's now where I work, has been set up as a, a white Western education system. We're indoctrinated through this system from a very early age for people who start their education in primary school and go all the way through. We're indoctrinated through that system all the way through to tertiary education to believe a range of really racist notions about education. So what we are told or what is inherently within Australian society is that really there's only one body of knowledge. It's the Western body of knowledge, starts with the Greeks and go from there. There's only one education system and these things are unnamed. They're not named as Western or white unless they're called out by people such as myself and others. And it's normalised as the only body of knowledge and uh, education system to exist. So we go from primary school and kindergarten all the way through to university thinking that this is the only knowledge system. What often happens is the education system and knowledge institutions very, very rarely acknowledge that other systems exist. Sometimes there is talk of Chinese philosophy or that kind of thing. In terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledges, that's extremely rarely acknowledged. And when it is, and those systems of knowledge transmission are also acknowledged, the education institution, the institution that is the education system, really marks it as inferior and without rigour and that it's not useful in modern Australian society. And you can see that in, for example, the push to teach children in Aboriginal languages, that that's not considered useful for a modern society, so it doesn't happen. So today's institutions were built to exclude First Peoples first and foremost. I want to be really clear about that. If we go back to that very point of Captain Cook and that journey up the East Coast and the establishment of the colony and the claiming of this land for the British Crown, these institutions were built to exclude First Peoples first and foremost and based on race. The purpose of this exclusion was really to ensure that privilege and power remains with wealthy white men. Therefore, our institutions exclude First Peoples first, but they also exclude, as I said before, non-white migrants. They exclude people with disabilities, queer people, poor people. There are two sides to the same coin, as I said before, and it was really struck me, I think, when Idil was talking about the connection between the tower lockdowns and missions and that mission era that First Peoples faced. You know, one of the things that I often talk about in terms of that two sides of the same coin is we have to understand that this racism, you know, the one side of the coin is about the ongoing dispossession of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that I just explained based on race. 
And the other side of that coin is we don't want non-white migrants to ruin the white purity of our white nation. And so we're going to exclude them as much as possible. We're going to set up borders. We are going to police those borders. We are going to incarcerate people who try to penetrate those borders that don't do it by the rules, all of those sorts of things. That racism is about excluding non-white migrants to maintain this white society, to maintain this colonisation, to maintain this ongoing dispossession. I wanted to end, because I think I've gone on for way too long, a little bit about my work, because that's what Libby asked me to do, and I have not done it. My work kind of revolves around two key elements, art as activism and resistance, and building solidarity and working with other structurally oppressed groups. So it was wonderful to hear Rouge and Idil talk about their work, in particular in that space. But I wanted to give an example of both of those things, really. And I wanted to quote from the Get Elbert Out campaign that's happening right now. RMIT University maintains a research partnership with Israeli weapons manufacturer Elbert Systems. Elbert is Israel's largest privately owned weapons company, proactive and complicit in the ongoing colonization of Palestine. Elbert provides the Israeli military with 85% of its killer drones used to terrorize and surveil Palestinians. These drones are mounted with Elbert's missiles and used to commit massacres. Israel's fighter jets and attack helicopters are furnished with Elbert equipment and munitions. These weapons are regularly used to attack residential neighbourhoods, family homes and refugee camps, and to suppress Indigenous resistance. Elbert weapons and technologies have killed thousands of people in Lebanon, the West Bank and Gaza, while destroying vital health and cultural infrastructure. So there's a, an open letter that I've signed. I encourage you all to sign it and get involved in the campaign to call on RMIT to leave this partnership with Elbert Systems. You can go to dobetteronpalestine.com. Two things. Importantly, artists have been really instrumental in leading this campaign. And I also wanted to you know, give a shout out to Lydia Thorpe when she spoke about Gary Foley and Bruce McInnes. People often don't realise that in addition to being activists, particularly in the 70s, they were both artists. They were both artists in their own right and they used art as activism and established organisations that we have today and artistic legacies that we have today. Even more importantly, as a Larrakia interior woman, as a racialized person facing structural oppression, it's important for me to work in solidarity with others who are also facing structural oppression. And may our people all be free. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you for having me here with you today and Elizabeth for starting our panel. It's great to be part of this forum to contemplate dwelling as justice and as decolonization and to make over the links with anti-colonial, decolonial struggle. I wanted to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people on whose land we are meeting today and to acknowledge that even as white as Australia currently is, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I've been thinking um, since I've been approached by Libby about what dwelling brings up for me. And at first um, I wasn't sure what I could contribute about housing or the housing crisis in so-called Australia, given that I haven't engaged in that kind of activism directly fighting for public housing or against homelessness. And Palestine seems like such a foreign place and a foreign site to these issues. But the more I sat with the task and thought about it, the more I realized that my interventions have been all about homing or our unhoming as Palestinians. And so I wanted to unpack that a bit more together, using this forum as a space to do that and to think together on what that could mean for intersectional decolonial struggles across various contexts. My friend who's Palestinian actually, who lives in San Francisco in Turtle Island, he often says that he has a skyscraper waiting for him in Palestine. That's a slide that's part of my talk, so that's why that's there. But um, <laughs> it seems a bit random. So that's Tel Aviv, which um, is an Israeli city uh, but that's the city that my family comes from, Yaffa, the city that we were exiled from through ethnic cleansing in 1948. Um, yeah, to say that, you know, there's a skyscraper 
Mordecai waiting for him in Palestine. It's his go-to in battles with Zionists who claim Palestine as their ancestral land. And it's hard to tell if he's completely serious when he says that, but it's serious enough to get under the skin of Zionists. And I think it's a cool way and a cool power fantasy to have given Israel's dedication to the modern logic of improvement and development. Every Palestinian gets a skyscraper as reparation, but also that kind of statement would only come from an American modern subject activist speaking from a place of diaspora, right? So I think in the ridiculousness of a statement such as this, we can really unsettle the ridiculousness of settler colonial notions because it's settlers who are chasing wealth, who are accumulating, who are building a hierarchical society based on commodification of land and resources. It's settler claims that are, of course, considered legitimate and sensible and part of the natural order under colonial modernity. And it's us Palestinians who are dismissed when we assert that we have a right to return to Palestine, to whatever Palestine has become 75 years into the Israeli settler colonial project. When we say that we're a nation in exile and the millions of us are going to return, we're considered excessive and we're considered and accused of being oppressive in our imagining of justice, of this form of dwelling justice. We're supposed to make productive and workable demands, right? That are comprehensible to the liberal international order and community and its post-World War II sensibilities. Our ethnic cleansing makes sense within that order, while our return is beyond any sense. For Palestinians, of course, the iron rusty key is a key symbol of Palestinian dispossession. And again, that strongly ties with what we're talking about in terms of homing and housing. It's literally a house key, right? And it resembles the theft of our homeland so deeply marked by the literal stealing of our houses that were and are still um, in many ways existing structures of homes, our grandparents' homes. Um, in 1948, when Israeli terror in the form of massacres was employed as a strategy of ethnic cleansing, over 700,000 of my people left their villages and cities with very few belongings with the perception that this terror would end and that they would walk back to the homes they left. So they they left to other Arab nations and that's where they were housed. There was no permanent colonial temporality in their minds and so they kept those keys. More than 500 villages were emptied using this strategy and the strategy was very crude where at the point of the gun and with the sight of blood and bodies of family members on pavements of their homes, our grandparents had to leave worlds behind, not knowing that they could never go back. So it was a strategy of terror because that site is what led to this mass exile and fleeing of people's homes. And of course, um, what we know is that settlers moved into their homes and this is part of the Nakba Palestinian memory. So this is a, an image from Gaza after one of the Israeli airstrikes. Palestinians in their millions are placed under siege at the moment and necropolitical indiscriminate bombing and airstrikes on housing complexes are all made sensible under the modern colonial liberal order. It's Orientalism, anti-Arab racism and Islamophobia that allows this kind of state violence to happen. And that's why, for me, centering race and discussions of race is really important. The civilized world has made these promises, right, of never again and has said no to racism. And so it's constructing sophisticated narratives that are used to justify imperialism in the global south that allow for this kind of state violence. And it's fought in the name of democracy, modernity and freedom itself against those of us who are deemed terrorists, and who are deemed senseless, who have no sense. And the violence is made normal through these sorts of constructions. And this kind of violence is made sensical to our part of the world. 
that the world is able to then overlook it and that Israel is able to then have that kind of impunity. So it's not that societies allow violence, it's that we have these narratives that then permit this kind of violence to occur about who's deserving and who's undeserving, and we've heard a lot about that already today. When the stateless defend their homeland and demand freedom for their homeland, and when the homeless demand housing, they're considered excessive and ridiculous again. There's a similar modern scolding and disciplining of their political ambition because the modern world is not made for them and their demands have no space within that kind of modern framing. Here we have um, a house being demolished in, um, I think it might be East Jerusalem or the West Bank. And again, when we talk about Nakba, it's an ongoing process. And when we talk about the violence of the Israeli state, it's in a crude form, but it's justified through sophisticated modern narratives. And that's what we see here, that even though this is actually what is outside what is sensible, it's Palestinians demanding this to end that is considered <coughs> possible and that we're told that this demand is too much, that it, there's no, you know, we, we failed you, but this is just your reality that you need to kind of navigate and accept. I recently read the book Colonial Lives of Property at the Institute of Postcolonial Studies in the reading group that we have, and it came to mind while I was preparing for this forum, because in that book, Bahanda shows how the colonial appropriation of indigenous lands depends upon ideologies of European racial superiority, as well as upon legal narratives that equate civilized life with English concepts of property. And in this way, property law legitimates and rationalizes settler colonial practices, while it racializes those deemed unfit to own property. And we see that in various ways in the Palestinian context. So Bahanda argues in this book that the solution instead is developing a new political imaginary of property in which freedom is connected to shared practices of use and community rather than individual possession. And I feel like this image really captures that because we see here that um, even though the, the house as a structure is being demolished to build an Israeli home, Palestinians find all sorts of ways to continue having a sense of home that is not necessarily tied to their physical property. We see the necessity of this alternative way to imagine homing and a dwelling for Palestinians, given that Palestinian homes are confiscated through Israeli court documents and a bundle of legal mandates. So Palestinians know that it's futile to resist on legal grounds and through respectable rights discourses that are part of the master's house. And I also struggle with discourses that present the Palestinian cause more recently as, for example, saying of Palestinian cause of a feminist struggle, it's a queer struggle, it's an environmental struggle. And even though it is in the case can be made strongly for that, it's hard to overlook the appealing through movements that perhaps seem to be more respectable or palatable to Western liberals when we try to articulate Palestine through that. So tying to Elizabeth's point on epistemology, as a Palestinian, I've grown up to know that dominant knowledge does not totalize, given that my uh, family uh, was based in Jordan and part of the refugee camps in Jordan. So I wanted to just show some of these refugee camps and how they are also part of um, this story of a nation in exile. So initially, Palestinians, when they were um, exiled into the surrounding Arab nations, they were given um, as one of the largest and first refugee communities really after World War II. Um, they were given these sorts of tents. It was meant to be a temporary solution. This was in 1948. And then that structure turned into the one you can see beside it. And then after that, this is how they look like today. So we're 75 years of people in 
you know, semi-permanent refugee camps, but of course, as um, second-class citizens and as people who are still fighting and resisting through upholding a right to return, because these are not considered their place of dwelling. Their place of dwelling is in Palestine, in, in a liberated Palestine. And so what I wanted to speak about here in terms of knowledge is that in these refugee camps where I spent some of my childhood in the milk bars, you would walk in and um, there were hung up maps of the region that marked the historic land of Palestine. The stores there were Palestinian owned. They were packed side by side across cement homes, which used to be tin and prior to that were tents. And, you know, in these camps, the streets were basically given numbers like street number one, street number two, street number 32. But then the stores had names like, you know, Jerusalem Boutique, Jaffa Jewelry, and Palestinian flags were flying across the front. And you had cheap golden frames of the occupied Al-Aqsa <coughs> Mosque hanging um, behind the cashier and the counters. And that's that's a way that Palestinians preserved a sense of home in exile. So when we talk about Palestinians in diaspora and in Western diaspora, there also needs to be that sort of work in terms of preserving Palestinian memory, but then thinking about it in terms of the context that we're in as well and making sure that, you know, even though we live in a suffocatingly white society, we're still able to maintain that kind of epistemology. And to do that, there needs to be a resistance to whiteness and to make sure that we don't embody white ways uh, of relating to this place, uh, settler ways. And that's quite difficult, but it requires a lot of unlearning, right? What happens is that a lot of Palestinians uh, and Arabs, when they come to the West, it's because they want to leave behind impoverishment. They want to leave behind the internalized sense of, you know, they don't want to be that refugee, that dispossessed person who is, they, they want to flee that sense of inferiority. And so one promise is the one provided by modernity. The, what modernity provides is, you know, buy a home, go up the ladder, gain status, gain rights, and so that promise is very obviously um, appealing and tempting. And in the discussion, we can talk more about the way that we resist that um, through co-struggle between our communities. That's the kind of work we've been doing in terms of connecting Indigenous struggle with Palestinian struggle, both as a, as a tactic here of decolonial resistance, but also as a way to educate and as a way to begin to articulate a way to do activism that doesn't reproduce the whiteness and, and the settler logics of this nation as well. Thanks. Liz, over to you. Thanks very much. I want to start by acknowledging I'm on sovereign Wurundjeri land. I am also from Mianjin, which is the home of ICRR, and that is Yagara land. So I pay my respects to all of those people and I want to acknowledge the really powerful sovereign speakers and thinkers we've heard from so far today and also both of you. It's a real honour to be on this panel. I originally was invited and accepted as a co-director of ICRR together with my colleague Dr David Singh who unfortunately has COVID. It hit him really hard. So he isn't able to be here today, which I know is disappointing to some people because um, David's probably the main attraction. And he speaks really powerfully as a racialized settler to other settlers of color about what it means to stand in solidarity and to orient yourself in anti-racist struggles through indigenous sovereignty, which is part of the kind of collective project of ICRR that we're engaged in. An important part of ICRR is our collectivity, but it's also that orientation to Indigenous sovereignty, and that comes with a focus on relationality and our relationships and our locations. So I think it's very important that I speak here today from my own location as a white settler, and I want to pick up some of the themes that have already been spoken about today, especially about 
the operation of white supremacy in our struggles because white supremacy is here. It's in this room today and it's deeply connected to settler colonialism in this place and it is very much present in progressive struggles and progressive spaces as well. So in responding to this question, the provocation of dwelling, I then want to think about that from my location and think about what it then looks like to dwell differently, to dwell justly in this place. Because so many of us here will share a commitment to wanting to live differently, to feel at home in the world differently because it is an incredibly violent world for all people in different ways. We want to engage in creative labor rather than be exploited. We want to live safely. We want to live with care rather than competition. We want to live more fully human lives. And that is tied to a desire to be in place and be at home. But the question for me as a white settler in this place becomes, what does it mean to think about dwelling justly in ways that are not possessive, especially given the context of the settler colony in which we live? So Indigenous critical thinkers and settler colonial theorists have told us that the settler colony is characterised by a particular kind of homemaking by settlers, that this is not a condition where a minority of Europeans come to try to exploit people. This is where a majority of colonists come to try to replace Indigenous people on their land and to naturalise that replacement. So to make their being at home here feel legitimate, feel safe, feel right. So there is an effective drive in colonial contexts like this for white settlers to want to be at home. And that drive to want to be at home is a violent colonial drive in a way. I think we have to acknowledge that, that there is a human drive to want to be at home, but in this context that becomes a political dynamic that can be really, really problematic. And a lot of thinkers have talked about the ways that self-indigenization is the ultimate dream, right, of colonists, to be at home here, to be the natural people in this place. And that is, of course, an incredibly violent process for Indigenous people. So it's a difficult question. I think it's a big question. And I think mainly what I want to say today is a couple of things about what I think it is, what dwelling justly is not. <laughs> which is probably not as helpful as talking about what dwelling justly is. But one of the things is that I think it's really important to understand that possessiveness as a feature of white supremacy is not just attached to capitalism, that capitalism is an economic structure that is based on possessiveness and possession, but that it is part of a broader structure of what Professor Aileen Morton Robinson calls patriarchal white colonial sovereignty that there is an actual kind of political structure as well that finds its kind of nexus in the, the Western sovereign state that divides the world into people who, groups of people who can own property, groups of people who can be made property, and groups of people who can be dispossessed to ground the property regime of the first group. Um, and in that context, the struggles Progressive struggles against capitalism are incredibly important because capitalism is a very violent and important part of interconnected with race and colonialism. But we need to remember some things about Australian history and um, socialist history here, which is that this was often configured as the white working man's paradise, that there's a very strong history of progressive activism here that is grounded as well in white possession and that was instrumental to, for example, the White Australia policy, which was very strongly supported by labour movements. Um, and I think another kind of form that I feel distrustful of is some of these forms of kind of new collective possession that we need to retake the global commons that have been under the neoliberal state divided and enclosed and taken from us. Because to do that is to naturalise our ownership our once ownership as white people of those commons, when in fact we never accumulated them, right? These are Indigenous lands they were never let go of. There is no mechanism by which Indigenous sovereignty here could be extinguished or we could le legitimately possess the lands here. 
So to speak about sharing out the capital that neoliberalism has accumulated, I think we need to be aware that those are the spoils of war and that trying to retake the state, even if we think we might be doing it in a more just and legitimate way, is still not understanding the way that that state is grounded in the fundamental structures that dispossess, which are racialized and which render certain groups of people as always unable to possess or as able to be possessed. So kind of the last thing I wanted to do is to talk about this in a little bit more of a personal or embodied way, because these are not just concepts and structures. I think it comes to rest in us and in all our complexities and our wounds and fractures and also our values and ethics and the way that we want to be in struggles. But one of the things that I find has become more and more clear to me through my engagement with the demands of Indigenous sovereignty and through my engagement with the demands of Palestinian sovereignty is the way that our virtue, right, our commitment to virtue, and in some cases, I'm going to speak about myself here, victimhood, can very much, they can be sites of openness that lead us to different things, but they can be sites of repossession and there can be a possessive response. And so the example that I'm going to give is that I come from a Jewish family. The Holocaust sits like a wound in my family, right? It comes down, I feel it in my body, I feel it in my psyche. And that's even in the context of what I understand to be a structural repositioning of Jewish people in the contemporary world since the Holocaust and a hyper-humanization and a grievability of Jewish victims. I still feel that wound. And yet, I, I think it's very important to think about the way we have responded and we choose to respond to that wound because there has been an invitation to Jewish people to come into the Western colonial project, to the heart of it. And I understand why, because of the sense of a place, a world that is not safe, people take that. However, one of the things that I take from my family and my experience is that those of us whose psyches, as Judith Butler says, are formed in the shadow of the Holocaust. The demand that's always placed on us is, will we speak up against illegitimate state power, no matter what the cost to us, or will we be silent? And in the context of Israel, even though criticism of Israel is configured as insensitive to Jewish suffering, as Judith Butler says, I think it springs precisely, my understanding is it springs from a desire for suffering itself to stop. So what that reveals to me then, um, just to finish, I suppose, is that it's very important in our locations as white people, I'm speaking to particular people here, that the assumption of progressiveness or victimhood in conditions of structural domination can lead to some of the most resilient and violent forms of ongoing oppression. Um, and I think we see that in Israel and its justifications for itself. So I just want to you know, echo everything Tasneem and Elizabeth said. We are part of, we are all part of violent systems. We're all complicit in them. And some of them we can divest from. So Elbert is an excellent example, and I would echo that call. Some of them we cannot fully divest from. I can't divest from the fact that I could go to Israel next week, right? And I could circulate freely there, but Palestinian people that I care about could not, even though they know where their grandparents' home is. So what does it mean then to dwell differently in this place, which is the long way round, is to say, I think Indigenous sovereignty, it doesn't invite us in. It, it makes demands of us to understand in all our complexity, our relationships and to work through our relationships. And some of those involve relationships of complicity and violence. And instead of trying to escape them as white people and it, putting all our energy into that, we can just work from them and we can start the work immediately. And I think that is dwelling differently in this place.
thanks so much, Liz. I'm going to turn to Tina, who is on the line, and let's hope this hybrid thingy works. Tina, are you there? Yes. Uh, I can't hear you, so I'm just going to go ahead, unless I see arms flailing around. Um, Oh, there we go. Uh, First, thank you so much for having me. It is such a privilege to be Zooming um, into Wurundjeri lands. I am, as Libby mentioned, the Uchinanchu woman, uh, Indigenous Okinawan woman born and raised here on Kanakamaoli lands in occupied Hawaii. Uh, my research and more recently my policy work is about the violence of property and the ways that Kanaka and working class settlers have responded to really intensifying housing precarity here in Hawaii. But my activism and organizing has largely centered around demilitarizing Hawaii, in part because my homelands in Okinawa are similarly occupied, desecrated, and contaminated by the U.S. military. So when I think about the struggle to dwell in Hawaii and how it's being experienced in this very moment, I think about two crises uh, that are plastered on newspaper headlines every single day. Um, The first is the affordable housing crisis, which is usually communicated in figures like half of Hawaii residents are struggling to get by, half of Hawaii's houseless are Native Hawaiians, houseless in their own homeland. The median home price has reached over $1 million and nearly a quarter of home purchases were made by out-of-state buyers. And finally, that we need to build 65,000 homes in order to meet demand and ostensibly lower housing costs. The second crisis is the Red Hill water crisis, which began in November of last year when thousands of gallons of jet fuel stored in the U.S. Navy's Red Hill fuel facility leaked uh, into Oahu's sole source aquifer, poisoning thousands of families who lived on the Navy's water line and cutting urban Oahu's water supply by 20%, potentially forever. As Kanakamali scholar Dr. Kalihua Krug has said, the Red Hill fuel leak is the closest we've come to watching an island die. Yet to this day, the Navy still has not shut down the facility and 100 million gallons of fuel are sitting in corroded tanks just 100 feet above our aquifer, which is a kinolau or a physical manifestation of the god Kane. So it's sacred water, of course. Uh, Both of these violences are treated as acute crises that conveniently demand a reinforcement of the very same systems that cause them. So to solve the housing crisis, we need to help developers build us out of it by incentivizing construction, and deregulating planning and land use. To solve the Red Hill crisis, sorry, I'm gonna pause because a military jet is flying overhead right now. I'm not sure if you can hear it. There we go. To solve the Red Hill crisis, we need to lobby the federal government to give the Department of Defense millions of taxpayer dollars to clean up their mess on top of their $773 billion annual budget. But we know that these crises are products of long-standing and interlocking systems of oppression. Settler colonial capitalism and military occupation in Hawaii have worked together since 1893 when American-born sugar barons overthrew Hawaii's queen with the help of the U.S. Marines, which had um, pointed their gunships at the Iolani Palace. So the struggle to dwell in Hawaii takes place in the context of these two predatory systems. Of course, people experience this struggle very, very differently according to their different positionalities across race and class. But at the root of this violence are systems that seek to eradicate the familial and reciprocal relationship that Kanaka Maoli share with the aina or the land or that which feeds. Settler colonial capitalism looks at Hawaii and sees profit. Militarism looks at Hawaii and sees a weapon of war for profit. So what does it look and feel like on the ground? I I know we're running short on time, so I I don't want to talk about my research. I actually also because I know borders are opening and I bet that more than a few people in this room are maybe planning a vacation to Hawaii. I want to use my time to share a moment that I've thought about every single day for the last couple of months. So one evening I was on a Zoom Zoom meeting, we were organizing around the Red Hill crisis, 
and it was after work so I called in while I was taking my evening walk down to Waikiki which is a world famous tourism destination and our densest tourism hub. So through my headphones we're talking about the, the recent announcement that Oahu residents were being asked to voluntarily cut our water usage by 10 percent to avoid over pumping that could suck the fuel plume from the Navy's well towards civilian pumping stations. If the fuel got into civilian distribution pipes, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of homes could become unlivable um, because petroleum would sink into the PVC pipes. Um, so I, I'm in this conversation and I'm looking around me and I see just thousands of tourists. Those are just a fraction of the 10 million who visit here annually compared to our population of 1.4 million. Each one of them, I assumed, was oblivious to the everyday violence felt by the people of Hawaii. Their hotel pools were full while we were questioning the ability of our island to sustain life with a poisoned water supply. And they were cushioned from the harsh realities of dwelling precarity by an a city ordinance known as the sit-lie ban, which criminalizes houselessness by making it illegal for people to sit, lie, or store possessions on the sidewalks of Waikiki. And remember that half of all houseless people in Hawaii are Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander. So I just remember fighting back tears. In Olalo Hawaii or Hawaiian language, Waikiki means spouting waters. It's named for the springs that fed these abundant wetlands that were dredged and infilled to create a tourist dream world and actually an R&R dream world for American soldiers. And if we really reflect on that name, I think we can see how dwelling injustice really begins with the transformation of aina or land. The spouting waters are dredged over and then contaminated, the kanaka who malamad or cared for them displaced, and then the tourists and settlers and military welcomed. And then somehow the violence still gets packaged as paradise and people still buy it, making the struggle to dwell even harder. And yeah, I think I'll leave it there for now. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tina, for bringing that perspective from your corner of the world. Nat, can you hear us? And and over to you now. Thank you. Hi, folks. It's really lovely to be here. I'm, I'm sorry I can't be there in person. I um, also want to acknowledge I'm speaking to you from stolen country, stolen land. I'm on Jagger and Turrbal country up here in Mianjin, Brisbane. And I want to pay my respects to elders past and present and acknowledge as it is so important to do um, the sovereignty over these lands and all the lands of this country have never been ceded. Um, I'm feeling really overwhelmed in such a powerful set of talks so far today. And yeah, I guess I'll contribute what I can from the, the space. Um, as Libby mentioned, I'm a, I'm a planning academic and a white settler. We've been doing a bit of work up here in Mianjin over the last little while around you know, really similar questions about dwelling justice. We held a forum called the Housing Justice and Unjust Cities Forum last year, grappling with, I think, a really similar set of questions kind of around how particularly those of us who are white settlers, progressive leftists, um, organize, operate, make claims in and from predominantly settler movements, make claims for justice on stolen land. I want to acknowledge just briefly my, my comrades in the Brisbane Free University and the Fern Collective for, for their work and, and huge contributions to that, that forum and the thinking we did around it, because that's really informed what I'm going to be talking about today. And I guess um, drawing a little bit between also what, what Liz said and Libby said on that kind of tension in the organising work that many of us um, and many of you in the audience are, are perhaps involved with, particularly in, in my experience on issues relating to both housing and to public space, and maybe, yeah, I guess do do some of that cautioning type work and, and troubling type work just in terms of maybe thinking about how we're framing and understanding what it is that we're doing. In a lot of the discourse around housing precarity, we, and again, when I say we, I'm, I'm speaking particularly of, of people like myself here, so um, white settlers from, from middle class or aspirationally middle class kinds of backgrounds, we often invoke a sense of loss right, that um, so many of my generation and generations coming up after we've sort of lost this future that we thought was on offer, that increasingly precarious and shitty work conditions, climate conditions, housing conditions are kind of conspiring against us to means that we won't have the future our parents had, uh, let alone we won't be able to sort of improve on, on what they had. 
And there's some rage and some outrage about that. For many of us, there's a grief in this kind of accounting for, for what's going on and, and where we're at. A grief of kind of lost hopes, this sense that, you know, maybe we struggled or we thought we like did all the right things and, and all of that. And yet we're not going to be able to achieve this sort of this wage that we were kind of offered, right? Like this suburban Australian dream. And it's I think it's important to acknowledge those feelings, right? And to acknowledge that effective experience, but importantly, to use it to connect us in relations of solidarity and kind of accountability for even our capacity to have had that dream to lose because of course that was never available to everyone, right? The Australian dream of property ownership of security through private exclusive possession and accumulation was never available to all. It was always founded on violence. It has pretended to be universal, but that's just kind of masking all the racialized colonial violence that underpins it. Fundamentally, that offering of that suburban dream was an, an effort for me, like, the kind of political work it served to do is to write my presence on the landscape as a matter of fact and a kind of entitlement rather than the deeply contingent situation that it is to re-enroll me in the project of white possession of stolen aboriginal land particularly in white futurity and this is i think something that i think about a lot in the context of planning right planning being a very future focused profession thinking about how do we do things in the future often that thinking that planning work is fundamentally reimagining and reinscribing white futures and settler futures um, on this landscape and the kind of housing the promise of housing the approach to housing we were offered was very much about that project of white futurity and it also functions to make us conservative right because it makes us want to protect the political and economic systems that underwrite and defend that white possession regardless of the harm they're doing that idea of property which um, as as Tasneem mentioned um, also serves to discipline us in these particular ways. And so there's kind of, without wanting to romanticize the struggle that this precarity and the expanding struggle that this represents, we're at a point where those contradictions of, of capitalism and settler colonial capitalism are escalating such that that offer, that dream is becoming untenable to more and more people. And that works to weaken the basic support it once had. And again, that does represent an expansion of danger. This is an urgent problem. But it's also kind of good for us to be failing at this stuff, right? And that that moment of injustice, of disappointment, of anger, of fear, of loss, of outrage. I hope that this is a point that we can use to connect us up to possibilities for solidarity and reimagining the terms on which we dwell. And I think that's going to require, as we heard also from Wit earlier, a bit of humility and a lot of reflection and maybe a bit of shame for the things that we were taught to desire. But I think in, in grappling with that, we can maybe begin to imagine these other modes of dwelling and that, yeah, it's, it's good to fail at being capitalist subjects. It's good to fail at, at colonial dreams, right? That's dope, actually. So just to conclude, given this invitation to think about dwelling justice and huge thanks to Libby, Dave and the other organisers for having me here, Colin McFarlane describes dwelling as a set of relations, right? So basically how we compile a space for our lives with whom, from what, taken from who and where, and everything that makes that inhabitation possible. So the questions we're kind of grappling in, with in these conversations is if dwellings, dwelling and dwelling justice is a set of relations, how do we get in better relation, right? How do we be in better relations in this place? Anishinaabe scholar Heather Dory writes in a really excellent article, What is Planning Without Property? that we need to, quote, identify and strengthen the practices that allow us to locate ourselves within the web of rationality that makes life possible. And that idea of locating ourselves, of being in place, goes back to that wonderful quote that Libby mentioned from Dr. Mary Graham. And Nishnabeg scholar Leanne Simpson also tells us that the opposite, I really love this, I think it's really key, that the opposite of dispossession is not possession. It's deep reciprocal consensual attachment. And I, while I like, there's certainly no clear path or recipe that's like, you know, three dot points for achieving dwelling justice. That's not what this is about. But I think maybe when we're reflecting in our own movements and thinking about how we are either reinscribing settler colonial futures or working to undo them, and there's no middle ground, it's, it's one of those two. I wonder if maybe we can return to those principles of, of deep reciprocal consensual attachment and really try and think about what that, what located in place attachment might look like and, and offer us in these struggles. And I'll leave it there. Thanks.
technically we have run out of time for a conversation. However, I just want to pose one very small question to each of you and ask if you would answer it as best you can in about 10 words, because we, <laughs> I don't want to keep probably um, waiting any longer. Um, we've talked a lot in the previous session. I want to acknowledge the amazing speakers in that and our two sovereign keynotes who brought such important work to this space. We've talked about institutions and accountability and relationship and attachment and those things. Given that each of us work in big colonial institutions, we work in deeply colonising violent spaces of knowledge making and, and so on. What do you each find, uh, and I find it tremendously difficult often being in those spaces, and I'm sure you share that too, and I say that as someone who carries phenomenal privilege through all of that, um, and that's an important part of that conversation. Uh, where do each of you locate, not hope, because as Chelsea Watergo would say, fuck hope, right? Not hope, but where do you find your most energy-driving moments of resistance where you want to give your energy to things what what where is that for each of you in your work i like really landed that question on them without any warning at all <laughs> just just to put you all in the picture of what i just did there liz okay go on all right um 10 words or less 10 words or less <laughs> yeah so obviously not strength of mine okay um i think when you flow through those institutions easily, you know you're getting it wrong. David Singh says, put your body on the gears of the institution and see it crunch. And that's what the power we have inside those institutions. Thank you. Elizabeth? Yeah, I mean, I think you did the wrong thing by getting all the academics together <laughs> because we're actually extremely verbose and can't stop talking. Um, you know, I think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really new to the academy. So I think for me, the way that I have gone into it is it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's about using the privilege of that and redistributing that. So that's kind of been my modus operandi. I'm very lucky to have a fellowship and um, I want to use those resources and I've recently been thinking about and contacting a bunch of different people that I can parcel off bits of money and resources to basically that's how I'm thank you I'm doing it perfect Tasneem yeah um, I'm not really sure like I don't believe in the good of institutions mm. and I think the Albert campaign uh, really demonstrates that, you know, it, it kind of sucks that we are in RMIT, this is an RMIT event and RMIT is in this partnership with Albert and I mean, I think that contract's probably not going to get cancelled. We put in so much effort and it's, yeah, sometimes feels like it's not going to go anywhere, but mm. I place my energy more in connecting people to sites of learning and consciousness raising that are flourishing and that can nurture this kind of decolonial imaginary outside of institutions. And like for me, I think if we're talking about relationality, this is the kind of work that we can each do to, to strengthen community, to strengthen sites of struggle. Thank and, you. Yeah, use mm -hmm. our knowledge for the, in service of that. Thank you. Tina? Yes. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I've spent the last two years working in the Hawaii State Legislature. I do not see any transformational change happening there. I think of it as a necessary place for people to hold the line and minimize the harm that's done by the settler state and sound the alarm to people on the ground when something really bad is coming down the line. But the times that I feel most motivated and energized are moments when we're on like a front line. Uh, I mentioned a Kanaka leader who said that the Red Hill crisis is the closest we, we've come to watching our island die. But in response to that, Hawaiian leaders held a 10-day occupation of the entrance to the U.S. Navy headquarters. Um, and those days I felt so energized. And I think what I'm, what I really struggle with is learn, is, or what I, hope we can get better at is 
creating those same spaces on a more sustained basis and carrying that energy and those relationships through to our everyday lives. So, um, so not just allowing them to exist in pockets of crisis, but uh, but bringing them into the structures of our of our daily lives. Nat, your thoughts in 10 words or less. <laughs> Look, uh, very briefly, I'm, I'm not really one for hope at all, but as far as possibility goes, universities suck, but students are amazing and, and awesome. And I think like thinking about Fred and Fred Moten and Stefano Hani's work, like there are still little cracks for unruliness in classrooms. And I feel like there are moments there where I get excited and where those possibilities feel present. Everyone, could you give our panel a very great round of applause? Thank you. We just heard from Libby Porter, Elizabeth Flynn, Tasneem Samak, Liz Strakosh, Tina Grandinetti and Nat Osborne in conversation on the politics of dwelling from the Forum for Dwelling Justice, which took place at the Capitol Theatre in Melbourne on the 26th of August. The forum was organised by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research and supported by the International Journal of Housing Policy, the Renters and Housing Union and also 3CR. For more information, a list of speakers and links and to listen back and share this program, you can find the podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash acting up. Tune into 3CR at the same time next week for more conversations from the forum. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.